Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Charles Hudson, the managing partner and founder of Precursor Ventures. Precursor Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm focused on investing in the first institutional round of investment for the most promising software and hardware companies. Some of their investments include The Athletic, Gooder, and Kosar. Without further ado, here's Charles. So tell me, how did Precursor come together? The real sort of key part of Precursor coming together was really the time that I spent at uh, Uncork, now known as SoftTech. So I joined the team at uncork back at the end of 2010 slash beginning of 2011 and mike just to give you some context like back then a large seed round was a million bucks and you know if you were raising a million and a half dollars in a seed round that was sort of borderline irresponsible that was a lot of money it was a different time seed funds were smaller series a rounds were smaller too and so what i noticed is that whole generation of early seed managers who got started in the late 2000s and had had some success were all getting larger and larger and larger with each subsequent fund that they raised. And one day I woke up and just realized, hey, all of the entrepreneurs that we used to back at a million dollars a pop, they just don't make sense for us anymore. And they don't make sense for us anymore, not because there aren't quality entrepreneurs who want to raise smaller rounds. It's that seed funds are larger now and you know, seed rounds are two to $3 million affairs, not million dollar affairs anymore. And structurally, many of the people who've been doing this work for a really long time their funds have gotten so large that they can also no longer afford to spend time with those small companies. And it just became clear to me that there was a hole in the bottom of the market where if somebody had a fund that was really focused on those million dollar rounds and smaller, that they would have a lot of room to innovate and that they would be able to fill an important gap for entrepreneurs. And that was it. So I took the plunge and left Uncork and set up shop for Precursor and sort of we're, we're well on our way now. How do you think about kind of the ecosystem of early stage investing? You know, I think it's interesting when you start a venture fund, you never know which, which of your hypotheses are going to turn out to be true. What I will say is when I started Precursor, a lot of people told me, hey, you know what? You're just out of touch with the market. 
the good companies in the market raise these big seed rounds. There's a real risk that if you focus on these companies that can't raise as much or don't want to raise as much, that you're going to end up with a huge basket of adverse selection when it comes to companies and that that's going to be pretty tough. And, you know, the best founders are going to raise more money from the best firms and there's really no room for a new entrant. And uh, I just didn't agree with that hypothesis and we needed a word to use. And, you know, I think pre-seed was the word that has stuck. I don't really even know some days, candidly, what pre-seed means. I think old-fashioned seed rounds are what I would love to describe precursor is doing, but that's a bit of a mouthful. And so I think right now we live in a world where there's two, two kinds of startups. The ones that can raise two to three million dollars from scratch. That's usually repeat founders or people who were low employee number count at big academy companies that you know, or people who have really, you know, VC-friendly reputations. And then there's everybody else who I think is generally speaking going to raise a million dollars or so to build out their product and generate some evidence. And we focus decidedly on that latter bucket of companies. Of course, very different, but it reminds me of my conversation a little bit with Paul Martino at Bullpen. A different stage, he invests in post-seed, but he saw the opportunity at post-seed because there's a lot of companies coming out of that, out of coming the seed stage that did not have you know, the traction or metrics or uh, the revenue to be to raise a series A round, but needed post seed round. And so he saw a lot of opportunity there. And it seems like you're seeing the opportunity, but on the other side before seed. And I consider Paul a friend and we've had a lot of fun talking about our journeys. And I think in a lot of ways I could take, if you substituted bullpen for precursor, I think all of that stuff is true. I think when Paul started, a lot of people said, oh, the only companies that are going to raise these post-seed rounds are ones that can't, you know, they're not good enough. And I think you fast forward five or seven years later and post-seed is a part of the ecosystem. It's perfectly, as many of our best companies raise rounds that are post-seeds. And so I think pre-seed isn't quite there yet as being, I think, kind of a fully embraced, legitimized part of the fundraising ecosystem. But uh, it's more fun to be there before everyone else has figured it out. It's very, very fascinating. Talk to me about your due diligence process, you know, at the early stages, especially as it contains to consumer companies. It's a really good question. It's probably the number one question that we get from limited partners looking at the fund, from people who are just generally curious. I guess the way I think about it is we're looking for, and I should just say off the top, about half of our portfolio is broadly consumer. And that's marketplaces, that's transactional consumer services, that's like pure apps, it's everything. And I guess in general, we look at for the same thing in our consumer and our B2B founders, which is really two core things. One is like, what's the founder's unique insight on the problem they're trying to solve? And why is that insight durable and sufficiently important to build the company around? And second, do we think the market's interesting? And I'd say we're probably 75% focused on the founder and his or her insights and 25% focused on the market. I used to tell people, I have to like your market. And now I'm just like, look, I have to just not hate it because there's lots of markets where I'm not an expert. And if it's interesting, I can be convinced. Like we've made investments in a waterless shampoo company, a next generation infant formula, um, a natural deodorant a couple of companies that are experimenting at the edge of consuming you know, a pure con- the way the consumers interact with and produce video. And in every one of those cases, I feel like the founder had an insight on the problem they were trying to solve that even though they were starting from scratch, 
that insight would still be true and valuable 12 to 18 months from now when they had a product ideally with some level of product market fit. Which means if, you, if you're just like, oh, Instagram doesn't have this feature or Facebook can't do this thing or Snapchat makes it really hard to do this other thing, it's important to remember that those companies are not gonna stand still for 12 or 18 months while you build. So if your whole thesis is like, there's something that they haven't done yet, there's a decent chance that they'll get to it if it's interesting. If you have an argument for why they structurally can't do it or why it will be very difficult to do it, that becomes really interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. So in order to have this, I guess, unique insight for a founder, does do you consider that a founder must have domain expertise, you know, a lot of experience working at industry, or are you finding that that's not the case? It's a really difficult question to answer. Some of our strongest portfolio company founders have deep, I think about someone like Rahul at Superhuman, he has spent a lot of time thinking about email. And uh, it's pretty difficult to build a product like that if you don't have a ton of experience. And I'd say, um, you know, the same, is, the same is true for many other founders in our portfolio. But then I'll say on the flip side, the team at ClearBank, they've done great. They didn't come to that company with a deep expertise in lending. So I think what I always ask myself is, is the founder's thesis about sort of a new opportunity or exploiting insider knowledge. So if it's a new opportunity, oftentimes I want somebody who doesn't have a ton of baggage that comes from you know, knowing too much about how the industry works today. The flip side is there are some businesses where like having deep insight on the way that things work is both essential and a huge advantage. And so I think we don't have a hard and fast rule. People talk about founder market fit. I don't really always subscribe to that view. I do think insights matter and sort of you have to have a right to win. But I think if you see something that no one else sees and you can execute it, many times that's sufficient. We actually do talk about founder market fit um, on the show uh, quite a bit. So it's nice to hear you know, a little bit of a different view towards founder market fit. Uh, you do invest in a lot of consumer, which we were talking about earlier, how consumer is is out, of fa- is out of favor at the moment with a lot of investors. And I was just curious as to, you know, why is that the case? I can tell you what people have told me. I can tell you also some things that I've observed, but I'm not sure are true. So a lot of my friends have told me, is like, hey, you know, the biggest of big consumer companies Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, Netflix are so powerful that there's no room. So you don't want to compete with them. You know, they have so much market power. Like, don't bother. You're not going to, you can't build a next gen application. I'm like, well, okay, well then explain TikTok. Explain the resurgence of Snapchat. Like, I don't know. I guess I feel like at the moment when people tell me that you can't do something, it's probably a pretty good idea to like examine whether or not that's true. Now, look, I think trying to take Google on on search on their terms is a fool's errand. Trying to beat Facebook at their own game is a fool's errand. But I think that's generically true about any established company. You don't want to compete with them on their home turf on their terms. And so I think there's a generation of, of investors who are just like, look, I don't want it. I don't want to place that bet. Two, I think we have more capital in the market than ever before. And, you know, consumer companies, a lot of people say, oh, they're binary, they either work or they don't. That's, I guess that's true to some degree, 
but no one seems to want to finance this sort of in-between phase where companies have some early momentum and are figuring it out, but it's not obvious that it's a breakout. So I think that makes, the if you're a seed investor, I think the feeling is, hey, the companies we invest in on the consumer side, if they're sort of pure consumer, they have to get really, really big really quickly to attract the eye of the Series A investor. But part of me feels like a lot of the people that are making investment decisions at a lot of firms feel like they have to be able to envision themselves as a customer of a product in order to invest. We don't have that restriction at Precursor. We've invested in breast pumps and sexual wellness products and all kinds of things where I'm like, I'm not the customer. I'm also not the customer of some enterprise AI ML thing that I use either. But I do feel like people apply additional scrutiny to consumer companies in terms of wanting to be able to imagine themselves using the product. And I don't, I've never understood the value in that sort of restriction. But I think it means as you have investors who are just not the consumer anymore, maybe they were 15 or 20 years ago, right? They're just not anymore. So I think this sort of inability to identify what the problem or the customer means, they just choose to focus more on B2B software investments, which I think feel safer in this environment. I think that's a good point in terms of investors thinking that, you know, are that they're maybe the ideal customer what are some what are some differences in your diligence process when evaluating consumer versus enterprise startups? I think for the consumer startups, for me, it really comes down to like, where are you going to spend your time and energy in terms of building out the brand? I do think there was a period of time when social media advertising was less expensive that you could really, I was probably more open to a pitch that was like, we're just really good at paid customer acquisition. And if you give us money, we're, we're really good at figuring out how to get the most out of Facebook or Instagram. And we're going to use your investment dollars to, to acquire a bunch of customers. And like paid is going to be a really large and significant chunk of what we do. That's just not a story that's interesting to me anymore. The question to me is always like, how are you going to build an authentic and interesting connection with your customer? And, and what hypotheses or theories do you have about where you can go find your customer? in clever, creative, and relatively inexpensive ways in the early day. I wanted to also touch on uh, pivoting. How do you think about pivoting in the early stages and founders pivoting until they see something stick? So I think there's like pivoting and flailing to me are like two different things. To me, pivoting is, hey, we tried something, it didn't work, Here's why it didn't work, and here's what we're going to do differently. I would say many, many of our portfolio companies will make some tweaks to the model based on first contact with customers. I'd say the most common ones are, oh, we wanted to do this as a B2C thing, but now we're going to be B2B to C or B2B. It just turned out that like getting the customer to care or getting the customer to pay was too hard. That to me is totally fine. What, I, what makes me way more concerned is flailing, which is like, this thing didn't work. So now we're gonna go try something dramatically different where we have no qualification whatsoever, but we're gonna make it work. And like, if I think about sort of the, the ClearBank team, you know, they started out wanting to build a financial services product, but for a really different audience. And their original audience ended up not being the right audience. And so, the discovery process led them to something that was a much better idea in the end. I'm not sure though that they would have gotten there if they hadn't started where they started. 
which again is why I try to focus so much on the founders and their insights and motivations, because I never mind if someone sort of stays in the same domain and takes a different crack at what they're doing. But if someone's like, hey, we're going to pivot from consumer messaging to enterprise data infrastructure, there aren't many teams that are equally good at both of those things. How do you think about portfolio con- uh, composition uh, when you invest in just a variety of verticals? It's interesting. So I'll tell you my high-level thesis is I think most categories only produce a handful of winners. So a lot of our limited partners and prospects ask me, well, how can you in the morning think about an electric vertical takeoff and landing cargo drone and in the evening think about a waterless shampoo company? Like, I don't know, I think at the stage where we invest, most companies have the same set of challenges, which is building and launching a product, finding product market fit, and figuring out your assumptions about the underlying drivers of the business. Do they work and are they true? I think that's kind of a generalized problem-solving exercise that every company has to go through. And so I guess for me, I think we try to never have two companies doing the same thing, which for me has been a good discipline because sometimes I'll meet a company and I'll say, wow, this team is really great. They're not maybe the best team that I could ever envision seeing in this category. So we're going to wait and see if you see that one team. Two, by having a lot of variety, you learn that like a lot of problems in startup life are common, but the specifics of their market and industry influence what they should do. And you can actually learn that from spending time with the founders themselves. They'll educate you on that stuff. And I also feel like I never want to be so heavy in any one category that if that category goes out of favor, that we'll have a bunch of companies in our portfolio that we can't finance. So I'm not, we're not a billion dollar fund. We're to say, hey, if you know, advertising technology or education technology goes out, of, goes out of favor for three years, we have the balance sheet that we can continue to support those companies as they're doing well. We, we don't have that. So I always try to say like, let's not go too crazy in any one category, knowing that sometimes sectors fall out of favor. And for us, it's we don't want to be caught with a really concentrated portfolio of companies that are in a really out of favor sector. I was also just wondering how you felt about building remote teams. That's a hard question to answer. I'll, I'll, I'm going to take a slightly different tact on that question and hopefully I'll get to what you, the, the, the meat of what you brought up. So for a lot of the companies that we talk to that are not in San Francisco, New York, or Los Angeles, I always want to know like, hey, what's the plan? Like, are you trying to build the sort of hero company in Cincinnati? Are you trying to build the hero company in Boulder? Or is this a headquarters decision? Because we certainly have companies that have started in other places and moved to major metros once the business started to scale and recruiting became more of an issue. And I think that's wise. Like the money they had went a lot further because they were spending those sort of product market fit dollars in a low cost environment. So I always want to know like, does the founder really, does the founder have roots and a plan to build a company where they are when I meet them or is, or are they open to moving? And if they're open to moving, I just have a lot fewer questions. If they're not open to moving, the question's like, well, do you have any experience managing and recruiting remote teams? And uh, uh, for a lot of companies in our portfolio, I say, if you don't have experience try to simplify your life and and think hard about whether you want to hire people to work remotely for your company when you have no experience with remote and they have no experience with remote. That to me has historically been a difficult, difficult combination to have work out. 
That makes sense how you think about it, looking at the entrepreneur's experience managing remote teams. What what consumer trends are you most focused on? It's funny. I feel like many of the things that I've become interested in, I've really backed into them. Like they weren't like we didn't have a thesis on clean beauty or on like basically reducing waste. We've made a bunch of investments in and around that theme, whether that's zero our sort of zero packaging reusable groceries grocery concept or uh, Bobby Baby on the formula side or or Oa Hair Care on the hair care side or Curie on the deodorant. Like, we've just made a bunch of investments, and so it's weird. Most of our most of our investment themes are I can tell you what they are in retrospect, but I didn't go into last year saying I'm going to find a bunch of companies that are working on XYZ problem. Cause I actually think founders are better at picking problems than I am. Like many times they come and I'm like, wow, the thing you just told me about, I had no idea it was a thing, but it's super fascinating. And I would say many of our best companies are in categories where I did not have a prepared mind thesis, but I was open to the idea that I could learn something from them. I think it also plays into your portfolio construction. And so I think I admire my friends in Series A land who will spend a bunch of time building a thesis on consumer fintech, right? And they'll find the one company that fits their thesis and they'll go big on it. I think that makes sense if your job is to make, and your portfolio construction says, hey, people in this firm are going to make one or two really meaningful commitments per year. My whole problem with sort of being too thesis driven is one, our portfolio construction would suggest we need far more theses than I could ever think about. And two, like I worry a lot about just missing out on the serendipity of somebody smart working on a problem you never even thought of. Like I think about like Alex Robinson at Juniper Square, I didn't know anything about what happens behind the scenes in commercial real estate transactions, but that's turned out to be like a really good company with really talented management and really good execution. And if I'd said, oh, I'm only looking at marketplaces and, you know, B2B SaaS for the future of work, I would miss out on it. And so I think what I will say is it takes a lot more work to educate your network on what to send you when you're a broad omnivore generalist. I just tell people like, we will look at almost anything unless it requires deep understanding of physics, chemistry, biology, or computer science. If it's one of those categories like deep, not, I'm not your guy. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Charles's full episode.